0: Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be able to sing those words, uh, not because they are something we wish would be true, but because of something you've told us is true, that Christ is our hope in life and in death. We pray that we'd be resting in Him. We pray for your help as we hear your Word. As I preach your Word, would we hear it? Would you give us uh, ears to hear? eyes to see Your goodness and trust You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As you turn there, I'll just mention two books um, written by sociologists, both of whom I, I don't think are, are necessarily Christians, but just commenting on American culture. One of those books is called Bowling Alone by Putnam is the author's last name. You can kind of guess what the title's about. Uh, bowling alone, right, so to some degree you can guess what it's about, uh, but what he's really trying to do, and maybe this isn't so obvious, is he's trying to show there was a time in American culture where uh, bowling leagues were very popular, right, and so, and so people would, be, would go involved, and, and his whole point is not just so much about bowling leagues, his point is that there was a time in American culture where, where civic engagement, uh, social engagement was very normal outside of just sitting in front of a screen, right? And so, he just tracks through cultural history in the United States and other Western countries and shows the decline in that and the effects that it is having. Uh, another author, um, Sherry Turkle, writes a book, I think it's called Alone Together, um, which is another interesting point where the, this idea that we can even be together in a room full of people and yet alone because we have devices where we can escape to wherever we want to go while we're in a room full of people that we could be talking to. Now, my point, I'm not pointing this out because I'm going to go, you know, off on the deep end of talking about all these different issues. I mean, every culture has issues. That's not my point. My point is not to bemoan the issues that we have, right? Every culture, everywhere, ever since Genesis 3 has had issues, and it will continue to be that way until we get to through the end of the book of Revelation, essentially, Right? There are issues until we are in God's perfect kingdom. But um, I point that out because Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a Christian pastor who died back in the 80s, um, said this, and I I think this connects to this idea of this kind of, uh, I guess what what I'm getting at is radical individualism right, a more inward turn rather than thinking about community and our connection to other people. And, and he says this about how this can get worked out in the church, and I don't know that Martin Lloyd-Jones is talking about it in the way those sociologists are, but I'm making this application. He says, a fatal tendency of many in the church is to think that the church is just a building to which they come to sit and listen to sermons and addresses and in which they do nothing. Now, I don't point that out because I, because I think that characterizes our church. I don't think that characterizes our church by God's grace, but I, I point it out because it could be a temptation to move in that direction. When you are in a culture, right, where the waves crashing in on the shoreline are constantly radical individualism, um, that's the cultural air you breathe whether you like it or not, right? I mean, just like in Corinth, we can read of Paul addressing cultural issues that they faced, Right, I mean, there were there were cultural waves crashing against them, and I think that's one of them. And so, when you combine that with a healthy church in which you have, um, I think, pastors that are are faithfully handling the word, that are equipped to 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 shepherd, um, it, it can become easy to to take a more passive or inward turn. Right, so the temptation is there. That's what I'm saying, and so we want to be warned against that. The temptation is to see the church as something like a school where we are just students who show up. We, we, we come, we, le- we listen, we learn, but we don't see any obligation to one another. Um, rather than seeing the biblical picture where the church is a body with various parts that are to function, rather than seeing the church as a family in which there are various members in the family that play important roles. And so we, we want to see a culture in which, um, we could say it this way, every member is somehow engaged in discipling. And we talked a little bit about what that meant last week. I'll review that in a second. But that's what we desire. The elders desire to guard us from waves of, of cultural, uh, radical individualism. And we desire to see us excel even more in every member engaged in ministry within the body. And, and not just the physical ministry, though that's needed. Um, but but really the spiritual ministry to one another. So this is the second sermon in a two-part series on discipling in the church, and it flows from some of the studying I did during working on my doctoral project, focusing on interpersonal discipleship or discipling one another. That's another way you could say that. So I'm sharing just some of what I learned as I looked through the Scriptures, thought about this, gained help from other people who have thought much longer and harder than I have on these things. And uh, so, review from last week, before we jump into this, last week we had two questions. We really had three, right? We had a preliminary question and then two other questions. And uh, the questions really were were related to what and who. That's what the questions were related to. So, it's kind of a, let's describe what we're talking about, right? Because if we just start talking about discipling, um, if we don't know what we're talking about, it's not going to be very fruitful, so, we need to know what we're talking about and then who is the one who's supposed to engage in this work. And so, the answers were, the preliminary question, just backing up, was what does it mean to be a disciple? Because if we don't know what discipling is after, which is making a disciple, that's a problem too, right? So, we had to, we had to address that preliminary question. So, we, we looked in the Gospels and thought about how trusting Jesus as Savior and the King that God sent to redeem us, to rescue us, trusting Him… And then obeying him. In other words, a full I'm denying self and I'm following you. I'm doing what you say. Um, that's basically what we meant when we said disciple to be a disciple of Jesus. And then we talked about then what is discipling. Well, discipling is helping others follow Jesus, which has two pieces to it, right? It's got evangelism, right? People have to know he this is who Jesus is. Trust him, right? And as Christians, we need to be taught all that he commanded, right? We saw that in Matthew twenty-eight. And so we are helping others follow Jesus. And and we've really been focusing in on that second aspect, which is helping one another um, who are Christians within the church follow Jesus. Know more of what he commands, know more of how trustworthy he is, and follow him faithfully. So that's discipling. And then we talked about who is responsible for this. And we said the pastors bear the role of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, outfitting them, getting them ready, equipped, prepared to do the work of the ministry. And in Ephesians 4, as we kept reading, we saw... That essentially is discipling ministry that's being described there, helping each member mature in the faith. So today we're going to answer two more questions, and this gets more to motive, and then practically how does it look? So the first question is why? Why should we engage in discipling and helping others mature in Christ? Why should each member engage in this work? So it's somewhat motivation is what we're getting at there. And then second, how can we engage in this work? Because you might be motivated, but then have no idea what exactly what it looks like or at least ideas of what it could look like. And so, um, because we all have various giftings, we all have various opportunities, but what does it look like? Uh, Because every member does need to engage in it, but not every member is gonna be able to engage in it in exactly the same way. That's true. So we need some ideas of what this might look like. I don't want you just to be convinced that you have work to do. I want you to um, kind of get a vision for what that might look like. That's what I'm saying. So, that's how we're going to follow along today and this is kind of more systematic study rather than just a verse-by-verse. Verse. Uh, but this does come out of the Scripture, and so we're going to spend a lot of time in the Scriptures, jumping around to different passages. So, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 first, and we're going to answer the question, why should you engage in discipling others in the church? Uh, basically, what we're asking is, what are the benefits and, and what are the motives to discipling one another? We want to see the biblical description of the wonderful effects of every member doing the work of the ministry. That's what we want to see. How does the Bible describe that? How, how does the Bible motivate us to see that this is good? Not just for me individually, but for the body as a whole. Both those things are true. I want biblical motives. There are many ways we could approach this, and there probably are many answers we could give to this, okay? Um, so I'm not pretending to have, like, this is the final word on this. But the way I'm approaching this is I want to talk about two different metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. And then think about how those motivate us to do this ministry to one another, okay? So, two two different metaphors. And the first one is Ephesians 4, and we looked at it a little bit last week, actually a good amount last week. In Ephesians 4, we see the metaphor of the body, the body of Christ. Look at Ephesians 4, 12. Pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Look down at verses 15 and 16 talking about every member's job, is involving this. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. So there's that idea of growing up. You think of body and maturing and growing. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. You have the idea of the head, right? In this analogy, in this metaphor, Jesus is the head of the body. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part of the body is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, Jesus is the head. Every member is a part of the body. So, we're talking about a a metaphor of a physical body to picture the spiritual body, which is also the church. That's what we're talking about. So, um, in discipling, we are all going to play a part in this. Now, think about how this motivates us to engage in this work of building up the body. Um, I've mentioned this a couple times, but I just think it's really important, so I'm going to to say it again. Uh, The metaphor is not of a school. There were schools back in the New Testament times, right? I mean, you'd go to your philosopher, and you'd sit out there, and you'd listen to your philosopher, ask questions, and engage with you in dialogue and all those things. Now, that's part of what, I mean, Jesus certainly engaged in dialogue and questions and answers with people. That's true. But he doesn't just say, you know, come to my philosophical school, and I will teach you. This is what the church is. It's just another, it's a meeting place where we just discuss philosophy all the time. That's not what it is. It's a body. It's a body. And so what that means is everyone has a vested interest in every other part of the body's growth, right? Again, in a school, the person next to you could be failing the class, and it does not affect your grade. I mean, I guess there may be some classes where teachers come up with a way to make it affect your grade, but generally they don't. It's not that way when you're talking about a body, if your lungs are not functioning at a proper level, maybe you can't run. Your bo- In other words, the whole body can't do certain things. It could even lead to death. And we see dying churches sometimes because the body is not healthy. It's not functioning the way it should. And one avenue to that is radical individualism. I think, I think that has claimed a lot of churches, so-called churches at least. So, there's an organi- we, we, we all organically do discipling because That's what makes the body thrive. There's an organic connection to one another in the church. Calvin helps us, John Calvin helps us apply this when he he wrote this. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but follow me. He says, no member of the body exists to serve itself, nor does each member exist merely for its own private use. I mean, think about it. It's like my hand is like, well, I just exist for me. Forget the rest of you, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. He should consider his own interest only insofar as he sets his mind on the general edification, the general building up of the whole church. Each member, therefore, has a responsibility to put its abilities to use for the other members in the body. In another place, Calvin gives us a very helpful, I think, picture when he talks about if a person focuses mainly on their individual growth, that's your main focus. Now, I want you to just side note you are to focus on your individual growth. We spent a lot of time talking last week about your discipleship, following Jesus faithfully, directly affects your ability to disciple others. So, so, so don't, don't mishear what I'm saying here, okay? But if, if I focus, you know, mainly, almost exclusively on that individual growth, it's like having a body part that just is content to grow to an enormous size and could care less about what's going on in the rest of the body. I mean, think about that image in your head, right? It's like, it's like your shoulder just gets enormous, and the rest of the body is just kind of its stunted little self. That's not healthy. If one member is stunted, it affects the whole body. If, if I'm the bicep, and, and you're the thigh, and um, I hate exercise, which I kind of do, if I hate exercise, one of my least favorite things to do… Um, so I'm, I'm like, I mean, I'm not that worried about it. I mean, I think I'll be okay. I mean, I'm still connected to the body, right? What does it really matter if I exercise? The thigh is doing everything anyway. It's good. And you're here's the thigh. And you just say, you know what? Um, if, if I slow down to help bicep, um, that's time I could have spent exercising. I could be growing. That is foolish. What happens when we need to pick something up as a body? We're going to have a problem. Unless you just get really good with your toes, right? We're going to have a problem. So we're interdependent on one another. This design is is made by God to glorify God because it shows that Christ is the head and that all the growth has to come from God. Because again, think about it. At the end of the day, I can't make all the other parts of the body grow. I can't even put together pieces of the body. Think about how complex the physical body is. So he's saying this is the same way it is with the spiritual body, the church. God does that, which again, we we go back to what we talked about last time where Jesus said, look, I'm with you till the end of the age, that's part of the encouragement, because you look at this, you say, we can't do this. You're right, you can't. But with God at work in you, with Christ among you, with the Spirit dwelling in you, yes, God does this work through us. But we have, we have a job to do. We have responsibility in the body. Thus, Ephesians 4.16 says, when each person is working properly, each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's an organic motive to help one another grow. Uh, Ephesians 4 fleshes this out even more about the benefits of of a healthy building up body. Um, And when I say flesh it out more, I do mean the pun that's intended there, right? We're fleshing it out here. How do we get to grow? How do we get to mature? Well, there are two glimpses of what maturing looks like. Um, And we get that where it gives us the goal. The goal of this work of every member contributing to building up the body is seen in beginning in verse 13. The beginning of it says, until we attain to. That is a way of saying here's the goal of every member working to build up the body. Here's what it's going to look like when this happens. So I guess what I'm saying is this should motivate you because it gives you a picture of, look at what a healthy body can look like in, in, spiritually speaking. First, first thing he points out is a healthy unity. Look at verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There's a unity around truth and the person of Christ. And those two are always connected, right? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So rather than a unity around simple things like hobbies or marital status or things we like or dislike or economic statuses, no, this is a unity that focuses on truth. And it's not uniformity like you might find in a cult, right? Well, we're the cult of the red t-shirts and we always wear red t-shirts or we like our coffee this way. We, we are very different. I mean, think about, again, the body gives you this illustration of diversity that makes a, co- a whole cohesive unity, you see what I'm saying? And so, we see that in the body. There's a unity around the truth. It draws us together of the faith, uh, what we believe as Christians as found in the Bible, which is why the Bible is central to our discipling endeavor, right? We can't, we're not going to do well without the Bible at the center. And our knowledge of Christ, that's part of it too. We grow to know Him better. Well, the second effect and goal is found in the second part of verse 13, and it's maturity. Until we attain, and then look down the second part of that, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see each member maturing. They don't remain in spiritual adolescence. When you have a healthy church, you don't have spiritual babies who stay spiritual babies forever. Think about how unhealthy it is. I think think about what it would be like if you had a family and everyone was kids. It's like Lord of the Flies or something, right? This is not going to go, if you spent time around kids, this is not going to go well, right? Now that's not necessarily the kid's fault, right? And we're going to talk about family metaphor here in a second. But the, but the point is, even here, it, it's it's not necessarily it can be, but it's not necessarily the immature Christian's fault. If if they're newly become a Christian, they need help growing, and that's part of what same thing with, with the body. You have a new body, and there's got a lot of growth that needs to happen, right? Um, and so we have these new nurturing, maturing things that need to happen when each member in the church is working to help one another grow, we find a maturing set of Christians. And so, um, if, if, uh, look at verse 14. Part of the goal here is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And there are, in the culture and in the church, there are false teachers. There's always someone looking to disciple you, right? I mean, you might think, well, don't churches, they just indoctrinate people. Everybody indoctrinates some, with something, question is, is it true and good, right? And, and so, we need to be um, filled with an understanding of God's Word so we're not tossed back and forth. We don't want to be, we don't want to stay and have members who stay like a small sailboat that can never leave, leave the harbor because it's always going to get thrown around. We're growing, we're developing, we're maturing into, into like cruise boats that can go out and, and face the, the gale storm winds of the culture and of false teachers even and, and endure and, and stay the course. Not end up on some deserted island somewhere, but make it to the golden shore. So we'll find that the younger will find safe harbor, and all of us can grow. It's not just the younger in the faith. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Um, Every way. Have you grown up in every way into Christ's likeness? We said this last time, but it's important to emphasize. Have you grown up in every way into Christ's likeness? I can assure you, you have not. I have not. None of us have. So we all need this speaking the truth in love, discipling relationship going on within the church. We all can find benefit as the body grows and builds up each part of the body. Well, a second metaphor that helps us answer why we should labor to help one another is found in the body of, uh, for, sorry, the metaphor of the family, the family of God. Look at Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2.19 this should motivate us as well. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So in the context of this is pretty amazing. In the context, he's talking about we are strangers and aliens, which is kind of a citizenship terminology. We're aliens. We are not residents of God's kingdom on our own. That's, that's how we start out, because we're, we're rebels against God's kingdom. It's not even just that we're not citizens, it's that we are hostile towards God's kingdom, even if that hostility looked like a very religious background, by the way. Even the very religious are essentially saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty righteous, I just kind of need a little boost. That is war against God's kingdom, because we all have sin. We're rebels against him. And so we're far away from his promises, but then look in verses 13 through 16. He saved us, verse 13, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both. And so here's where the context comes into play. When he says both, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, two groups that ethnically would not consider themselves on the same footing here. We don't even want to have to, I don't want to see in my peripheral, I don't have to look at them, right? Naturally, that would be their view. One has, uh, so sorry, both made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, number one, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and two, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So we are reconciled to God through Jesus. So, so if that's not true of you, if you're not in Jesus, the call to you is trust in Jesus, that's really where, the, where this sermon applies to you. Be reconciled to God through his son. But, but notice that he's talking about this peace we have with God, but at the same time, he's talking about reconciliation and peace with other people who are put into the body. Still using that body language, right? Okay. So, we're one body in Christ. We're one new man because we're reconciled to God through Jesus. So, we're fellow citizens. So, now he changed, the metaphor changes a little bit in verse 19. We are now citizens of God's kingdom. But notice, the metaphor goes beyond citizens. I think that is an important metaphor. We can spend a lot of time on it. But notice he goes beyond that. And he says, you're members of the household of God. That's incredible. That's incredible. Right? I mean, these people were were totally going their own direction on things, and they're reconciled to God, and because of that, they're reconciled to one another in what is the household of God, the family of God. This is incredible work that Christ has done. We see other places, we see the family language. Mark 3, 31 um, and following, Jesus is talking to a crowd, and there they say, look, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And then in verse 33, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is taking family language and applying it to this new people that he's making. Okay, let me just say for a second, we might not be too impressed with that because we live in a day where, I mean, I listened to some kid's movie and the song was like, friends or family, you can choose. That's bogus. That's not true, right? But we live in a day where we we think we think we can just choose our own family. We can make it, and we're gonna be we're gonna be tight with these people. God has designed it so that the family is the closest knit part of society. That was that was part of the original design, and it carries on to today. Um, and Jesus is saying, "You are my brothers and sisters." This is outrageous to this first group of people that are hearing this, probably. Because they're thinking brother and sister, by the way, was probably the closest relationship you could have—brother, brother, brother, brother sister—in the ancient, in the Near East. Um, in many ways, even closer than you might have with your spouse. Which I mean, I, that's where I would look and say culturally, we got some problems with that too, right? But the point is, there, there's this close connection. And so, what he's essentially saying is, these are—we have the closest relationship with one another. That's a big deal. Paul uses the term as well, so Paul picks up on it. He uses the term brother and sister 139 times. I'm not going to read all those for you. Just take my word for it, right? That's a lot of times. Um, he also speaks of being a spiritual father. Titus 1, 4. To Titus, my true child in the common faith. 1 Timothy 1:2. 1, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. 1 Corinthians 4:15. You may have countless guides in Christ, but you do not have many fathers, for I became a father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Um, 1 Timothy 5.1 talks about the church being a family. Don't rebuke older men, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. To us, this might not seem like a big deal, but it is. It is the closest relationship we could have. And so uh, this is ubiquitous in Scripture. It's all over the place. And if it's all over the place, it should significantly shape the church's culture. That's my point. This reality, that the church is family, should shape the culture of the church. And again, I think in our day and age, the temptation is to be more shaped by radical individualism. Now, we can go to the other extreme, and the Bible does say we're still individuals. So we don't want to go to the other extreme pretending there's no room for the fact that we are different and unique and individuals. We all have to contribute different things to the family. I think the family metaphor even points that out. You have older, you have younger, right? You You have all these different roles. And yet, you have one family. Most Christians acknowledge this truth that we're the family of God, at least theologically, positionally, but maybe not practically. Um, we fail to see that it realigns life and priorities, that the church is not a place, it's not an organization, it is a family. If we forget that, we, we might end up living a lot like an only child. So, no offense, I know there's some of you out there who are you're probably an only child, right? Maybe some of you can. can Uh, to this, but it it can be that as an only child, you can become very focused on you and your own development, right? But and and forget about the formation of a family as a whole. And so, what we need to see is the family metaphor of having not just not just me, but brothers and sisters, right? Mothers and fathers in the faith causes us to not um, go off into these ditches of radical individualism and all these other things, but to stay the course of we are responsible for the formation and health of a family if we all fill the role that we have. Um, Joseph Hellerman writes this. I think it's helpful. He says, "...the New Testament picture of the church as a family flies in the face of our individualistic culture orient- cultural orientation. God's intention is not to become the feel-good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith as yet another avenue toward personal enlightenment." That's, that's a big deal because not only do we have this radical individualism, because of that, everything is turned psychologized as well, and everything is all about my personal enlightenment and, and, and personal development internally. But do you see what I'm saying? If, if the church is a family, that's not the right way to look at it. God is not just, because again, we can get the father part. We can say, well, yeah, God's my father, but then we forget the family connection part, and if we do that, we can very easily drift into this radical individualism that is psychologized and very internal. It's all about my personal growth. Again, do you need to grow? Yes. You will need to grow until you get to heaven, and so will I. So don't neglect that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, don't go into this ditch, don't go into that ditch. That's what I'm saying. So we need to grow in love for one another. That's really the, So the first application here of it being a family is that we need to renounce radical individualism. Um, we need to put the interest of others above our own selves, Philippians 2. Um, and this is important in helping motivate us because when you, uh, if you have encountered other Christians for any length of time, you realize not everybody is, is easy to get along with. Not everybody thinks the way you think. So when we start discipling one another... Which, by the way, we're trying to help them follow Jesus, not just to look like you or me, right? Now, we can say with Paul, as much as I'm following Christ, you follow my example. So, we, we ought, so there's a sense in which we're saying, follow me. But that's only in as much as we're actually saying, follow Jesus. So, so it's going to get difficult because they're not going to think the way you are. And your job is not to make them think the way you do. And that sometimes will be hard, very hard for some of us. And so when we see family, we're called to renounce all this self-focus thing and focus more on, okay, I can persevere in loving this other person because it's not just about me. We're part of the same family. Families do that. They get along with awkward and weird family members, right? You go to a family reunion. I mean, you all are thinking about someone right now probably, right? That's part of it. Second, uh, so, we, so we're renouncing radical individualism, or we could say it this way, we're putting on radical Christ-centered love towards one another. That's what we're doing. Another implication of the church's family is we must be around each other regularly. There are times we can't control that due to significant illness or inability to gather for some reason that is significant. Um, but, but there are times we can neglect it. And if the church is family, we can't neglect it. A family is not, listen, your family is not very healthy if no one is ever willing to get together. Now, I understand your physical family, there may be painful things where you can't get over that, so I don't mean to make light of that, but but you still realize if that's not happening, you realize, and maybe you're even sorrowful over, man, something isn't right here, though, right? And so, so the implication here, then, though, is with the family of God that we ought to and must be together. If I never show up to the family meals, the family gatherings, there's a problem. Third implication We have different roles to play. We'll look at this more later. But in Titus 2, we're told, uh, talking about discipling, that older men and women and younger men and women have different roles in this discipling endeavor. There there are things that... And so that connects to the family. It's an implication out of family because in a family, Paul can say things to these younger men that he's discipling. He can say, look, I was like a father to you. They're not saying I was like a father to you, but they both participated in that discipling relationship. Right? And so, and so in some sense, we, we all can play different roles, though, at the same time. That's what's a little different about this. I can always have someone further along than me, and I can always have someone further behind me. I'm always helping, and I'm always being helped. That's part of being in this family. We all might have different roles in different relationships. So the summary of this section, then, is um, why should we do this discipling work? It's hard. It's inconvenient. It takes time. It takes energy. Why should we do that? Individualism is so much easier. Why should we do it? Because we're the body of Christ. We want to glorify God. Well, his, the body of Christ puts the glory of God on display. We want to be benefiting and, and avoiding false doctrine and all the other dangers out there. Well, the body needs to be healthy, right? The church is the family of God. We're brothers and sisters with obligations to one another. That's why we need to do this hard work, right? Brings us to the second question, how can you engage in discipling? So let's assume that after this rousing presentation, you are, you are just motivated and you say, yes, this is biblical, yes, uh, this is what we need to be doing, continue doing, excelling in even more. Um, my, so my assumption is that's where you're all at, okay? So just kind of sit quietly if that's where you're all at. Good, good. Okay. This brings us to the second question. So how can we do this? And we need to have biblical pictures, biblical sketches of what this looks like, because if you leave here with the motivation to do it, but no idea of what it looks like, I think all of us have a general idea, but if we don't have some ideas of what it might look like, you're going to be, you're probably not going to do much about it, right? It's kind of like, well, hey, I want to start exercising but I have no idea what that, what like normal exercising looks like. And I go out and I try to run like five miles, and I'm like huffing and puffing, and I'm like dying. And then I'm like, well, I tried it. Done. That didn't work. I was motivated, didn't know what I was doing, and so now I'm done. Right? Um, no, I want to give you some ideas of what this could look like. Um, and again, it, it could be different because if we ask the question, does every member have the same role? The answer is no. So I'm going to give you different pictures of what this looks like in the Bible because different seasons of life, you're going to have different roles. But the goal for all of us at every season is: I want to mature in Christ, and I want to help others mature in Christ. That's what we're doing. If you're younger, don't think you you just. It's like it's. Well, I don't have any role in this. Listen, if you're not growing, you're not going to be in a place to disciple others. So we all have a role to do, to take part in. Okay, so we're going to look at some biblical ways this can look. Oh, and and one summary thing here. Uh, what we're trying to do is speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4:15, speak the truth in love so that we grow up in every way into him, into Christ. That's what I'm saying. So truth and love. Anytime anytime we are speaking the truth, which is God's word to one another or at least applications of it or ideas about it, we're speaking the truth and we're doing it in love. The motive is love. It's not control, it's not pride right? It's, it's, it's love. It's, and what is love? Love is I want you to look more and more like Christ. That is the most loving desire I can have for another person. Because Christ is the best person ever. God in human flesh, perfect, perfectly loving the Father, He is the perfect one. And so we want to follow Him. We want to look more like Him. So let me talk about the first, uh, the first place this might come out. The first place this might come out, uh, look at, it, well, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but Ephesians 5 is what I'm going to be referencing. The first place is going to be in your own physical household. The metaphor of the church as a family does not erase our requirements to minister to our physical family. Even Jesus on the cross, so remember Jesus earlier in Mark 3 said, behold, here's, here are my sister, my brothers, you know, the, my, my, my uh, mother, my mother." the people who want to do the will of God, right? So, but even on the cross, Jesus looks at one of his disciples and looks at his mother, his physical mother, and basically says, take care of my mom. You see what I'm saying? There's still even a physical desire to care for family. So, so this is still part of it. Ephesians 5, so this is really the first level of discipling work, okay, is within our own homes. Uh, Husbands and wives, verses 25 through 30, husband is designed to be um, a picture of Christ. Marriage is intended to be a picture of Christ in the church. The husband pictures Christ. Um, He shows to show Christ's love of sacrificial sacrificially giving himself for the good of his bride, to care for her, um, and desire to see her grow in Christ's likeness, to lead her in holiness. We see that there as well. And all this is done with a motive uh, that we've kind of seen earlier of, essentially, if you care for your own body, Now that you're one flesh in marriage, it should be natural, or at least you should be growing in this being natural, to care for your wife because you are one flesh. So, both physically and spiritually. And as leader, he bears the role in leading in those things for her good to look more like Christ. Now, you may have an unbelieving spouse, and and so your role is still the same, though, but it's more on the evangelism side. It's how can I, but this physical love is still there. That doesn't get removed just because she's not a Christian or she is even hostile towards Christianity. Now you're talking about the evangelism side. I love, even, even if she's acting like an enemy, I love her. And I point her to Christ through my testimony, through my modeling, through my teaching. We see also the wife's role pictures the church, and she would be supporting her husband, respecting him, following his lead, especially if he's a Christian. She's supporting all the ways he's trying to lead in Christ-likeness. Even if he's not, again, we see seen this in 1 Peter she is still, by her, her, her testimony and her, her submissive spirit, her seeking to honor God, she is still pointing towards Christ. She's saying, look, I, I don't have to fear anything, even bad leadership. I mean, you don't have to say this to, out loud, but even bad leadership because Christ is in charge. I follow Him, and He'll take care of me. That's a sign of the trustworthiness of Christ. She can immerse herself in God's Word and provide godly wisdom as a helpmate to her husband. God has given her as a helpmate, one to help, and, and He needs her wisdom. So so there's a sense in which husband and wife are discipling one another. Um, We we can kind of see this in Spurgeon's marriage and other places if you go read some historical works. Uh, Ephesians 6, parents play a key role in discipling their children. Ephesians 6, 4, the second part of that, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When you have children in the home, this will take a good chunk of your discipling effort. Do not feel bad about that, okay? Okay? Don't feel bad about that. Now, I do want to warn you too, though, don't let everything turn inward. That is a danger. I mean, we can let everything turn inward, right? It's all about me and my family. We're going to huddle up the wagons and kind of protect each other, and we go to church, but we're still in our wagons, and then we come back, and we're still in our wagons. I'm not saying that, but, but you cannot neglect discipling your children. You know why? God gave you to disciple them. He didn't give all these other people. Now, there's a sense in which all these other people play a role in that. That's true. It's not an island thing. But what I'm saying is you'll be derelict at your duty if you do not fulfill this. And in fact, you will not really be well qualified later in life to do what an older godly person is to do as we're gonna see in Titus 2. And all the instruction that an older godly person is is to to show. Um, Now, by God's redeeming grace, even if we failed miserably, there is repentance and there is growth and you still can be useful. So I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying we want to be growing and discipling and living where God has placed us. And if you have young children in the home or children in the home, this is a primary place you're supposed to work. And so what I would say is you need to invest in your children uh, by example and model. That's one thing. Discipling, just like in every other sphere of discipling, modeling an example of Christ-likeness is part of that, huge part of that. Um, so we're not surprised when we see that, by the way, in the way we disciple one another in the church. If it's supposed to look like a family, and think about how much children learn by simply watching things modeled. Unfortunately, they seem to pick up on the bad things more quickly, right? But all of us do that. Um, but they need to see it modeled. Uh, they, they need to be trained and instructed in God's truth and His ways. There needs to be ministry of the Word to them, especially fathers leading in this. But fathers and mothers, uh, especially if they're Christian, if they are christian parents they need to do that and i would also add guarding them from competing discipleship programs there are competing discipleship programs the world is its own discipleship program um now i'm not saying we just remove and we live like monks right we just we're gonna move off to an island off the you know off scotland or something and no one's gonna see us there we're just gonna have a little monastery and and live there but we are kind of we are foolish if we think you know hey um my, my six- or eight-year-old, they're, they're basically kind of, you know, they're missionary to the mission field out there. They don't have the mental ability to, to reason and argue and all these other things the way that you would really need to to face a hostile, competing worldview getting shoved down your throat all the time. So we need to think about that we're, we're, wherever we're going to place them, right? So we have to continue to disciple them. I'm not just talking, I mean, I guess that could apply to education, but I'm just talking in general. Really, the main thing I have in mind is entertainment. Um, So I would really say, you know, when it comes to social media, everything from YouTube to um, Twitter to Instagram to uh, TikTok, all these other things, unrestricted access to that, that is a discipling program in and of itself, and it is not the discipleship of Christ. I'm not saying there aren't any good or redeeming things on there. I'm I'm sure there can be. And should you be somehow finding ways to train your kids to live in a social media age? Sure. I mean, that's part of the age we live in but unrestricted access is like leaving them alone in a lion's den and wondering what's going to happen. We need, we need to be thoughtful about these things. And maybe you've already gone further than you want to go down that road. I mean, parents, I mean, how many times do we do this, right? We, we do something and we're like, I wish I wouldn't have opened up that door. So this is normal. Please don't feel shame and beat up over this. But you know what? You're the parent. You can still walk that back. it's not too late to start thinking about, okay, how can I guard them against bad discipleship things? I mean, and and by the way, even secular people are saying that there have been studies and studies done showing how, especially for teen girls, young girls, how bad some of these things are, Instagram and TikTok. So again, I'm not saying they can't ever use it. I'm just saying unrestricted access is not a good idea, okay? Um, That's me just making application here. I don't have a verse to say, you know, thou shalt not use this. I'm just, I'm saying, I think that's wisdom, okay? So if you disagree with me, don't, don't punch me, but at least think about it. Think about it. So we need to be extra cautious about these things. Um, there are other things vying for their hearts. There are a lot of resources that can help you think these things through. Uh, there are books, but I would encourage you, ask older godly men and women to help you. They may not have been through exactly the same uh, technology component of that, but they know how to grow in Christ likeness. They can help you think about that. You can ask your pastors to help you think that through as well. Well, now we're going to look at things within the church, and we're going to go from broadest to the deeper forms here of it. One is ministry of the pew. This is the probably broadest form in in the church in which we all can engage in discipling. You have a handout in your bulletin called How Can I Build Up the, the, uh, the Body at Grace Church, the ministry of the pew. That's a helpful resource, hopefully, to you. I borrowed this term from Tony Payne and Colin Marshall, so it's not new to me, but the idea is when we gather as a church, it's not just the pastors who have the job of building up the church. We have a pew ministry, the pew, right? Everyone sitting in the pews has work to do. No one comes as a spectator. Everyone comes with a job to do. Hebrews 10 is one place we see that. You can turn to Hebrews 10 if you'd like. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. We see the ministry of the pew here when he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, um, we have to be together if this is going to happen. There has to be a gathering together, right, to engage in the work. But, but look at what he says here. Here's how you can do this. First of all, consider. Consider just means give careful thought to. So if you want to come and you're saying, what's one thing I can do to be involved in discipling? It starts with just considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's as simple as that. If you come with a mindset of, and a prayer of, God, help me do spiritual good. Help me to help others in following you. That's that's really the first step down actually engaging in that type of ministry. We need to stir up, provoke, rouse one another to love and good works, and we need to encourage one another to hold fast to Christ. That's what the context there is talking about when he says encourage one another. So we're bearing one another's burdens, I think, when we're doing that. So you have that handout, take it with you, look over I'm just going to point out a couple things. One is pray for opportunities to do this. I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Number two is pray for a few people through the directory. Use the church directory, if you're a member, and pray for one another. Because number one, that is ministry and helping one another follow Christ, Number two, it puts someone on your radar, so when you come to church, it's like, well, hey, I can encourage this person. I was just thinking about, I was just praying for this person. When you get here, here's some suggested ideas, and again, these are suggestions. I don't have Bible verses for all these. I'm not saying these are commands, so please don't weigh yourself down with you know, some sort of legalistic conception of this, but these are ideas. Arrive early, stick around a bit late. Use the break between Sunday school and worship service um, to talk with people. Be around older or younger saints. Uh, if you're always siloed off in your own age group, you're probably not going to be benefiting or benefiting others the way you should. Ask someone what enjoyable or hard things they are anticipating this coming week. Pray for it and then follow up. So you can use that handout. Um, what, what, I, what I like about this is, number one, it shows it, 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 no one comes to church without meaningful membership to do. Right? I mean, you might be thinking, people sometimes think, that, what can I do? How can I How can I serve? And there are lots of ways to serve, lots of formal ministries to serve in, and they need to be, people need to serve in those. Everyone can do meaningful spiritual ministry to one another through the ministry of the pew. You don't have to come wondering how you can serve. If you come with this mindset, you are coming to serve. Uh, And what I like about this is it's a built-in opportunity. One of the biggest challenges, I think, is time right? You only have so much time and we're all really busy. And some of that we might need to reevaluate. Sometimes we're busy because we're just, I mean, a lot of times we do what we want to do. We make time for what we want to make time for. So we need to humbly evaluate. Am I just not making time for the things God prioritizes? But even when we do that, we're still busy. And there may be times where you really are. I mean, Sunday morning is is the only time you're going to be able to gather. Well, this is a built-in opportunity. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to add extra time to your schedule. You are already here. You just need to come with the mindset of doing the work of the ministry. Three other areas here that progressively, we're going to go faster through these, but these progressively get a little more committed um, and deeper in what we're doing. Think of these as trellises that that the vine uh, that you're growing in ministry can grow on, okay? Um, One of those is we're going to offer a small group setting coming up here in the fall, and it's going to meet four times, trying to keep it as simple as possible, four times between mid-September and mid-November, and it's just a tool that allows you to be together, gives you another time to be together with other members in the church, to fellowship, talk about the Bible together, and pray, um, to engage in the one another commands. Listen, this is not like the magical, like, hey, if we have small groups, we got discipleship going on. That's not true. You can, have, you can have small groups and have no discipleship going on. But it can be a helpful tool. So it's one tool that we want to offer. We, we're trying to say, here's another tool to allow for this to happen, another venue for this to happen. And so uh, we'll have more, more information on this. And so in a lot of ways, it's really just the ministry of the pew in another added setting with a smaller group of people that you meet with for a period of four weeks. Get more invested in, in just how can we encourage one another. So there'll be more info about that soon. Be looking for that. The next is personal discipleship. And you see this happen in Titus 2. Titus 2, um, you can turn there if you want. This is probably the last passage we're gonna look at as we wrap it up here in a minute. But Titus 2... Um, I'm going to give you an illustration about, that kind of illustrates this. I got this from someone else. But if you think of a small tree that's bent over from storms and, and maybe, you know, little kids climbing all over it and doing things to it. Um, and it's all bent over. One thing you can do to help straighten that out is you can tie that tree, if there's a nearby bigger, stronger, mature tree, you could potentially tie it, you kind of stake it off to that tree. Right? And this other tree is bigger. It's weathered more storms. Its roots have gone deeper. Its roots have gone further. And and by doing that, you give it's kind of like you've coupled this younger tree with a bigger, more mature tree to allow it to grow straight and healthy. In a lot of ways, that's what's happening in Titus 2. We're saying the older can come along, the more mature can come along as as a a more mature tree has weathered more storms, has driven roots deeper into Christ and his word, and then be a supporting stability for. Younger believers, less mature believers. Um, We all have different different uh, roles to play in this, but we can each engage in this work. And it's interesting in the context here. By the way, he's just talked about false teachers, and now he goes on and says, um, "You need to teach what accords with sound doctrine." And what what does he say? He doesn't go on and just list a bunch of theological truths, although that's certainly in this whole this whole book. But he says, "I want older men and women. This is how they're supposed to live." And they're to teach the younger men and women to do these things. So again, we're seeing, just like we saw in Ephesians, what's going to help you weather those storms? It's this intergenerational discipling going on. So he says older men in in verse 2, older men, they are to be. So so in other words, you're modeling this godliness. You're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent. And he goes on and lists what they're to look like. And he says they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. Titus in verse 7, a mature man and pastor, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So we have these different roles, older and younger, and that's relative, by the way. Um, I I think his point is you're just more mature. That's what he's talking about. The older model this godly character, and they teach and train. You see that with what he says to the women there, to teach and train? I think he says it to the men, too, in a different way, but it's interesting. When he talks about teaching these younger women what is good, that seems to be a word that Paul coined, and here's what it means, informal, one-on-one encouragement. In this context, this is what Mounts says, by the way, this is a quote from Mounts, it pictures the older women, uh, those who are experienced in life, marriage, and child-rearing, taking the younger women in the congregation under their care and helping them to adjust to their responsibilities. There's this one-on-one or at least smaller group, and it's, it's personal. How can I help you live out Christianity in the setting God has you in? As someone who probably has been through that before. Likewise to the men in Titus 2.7, urge the younger men in Christian discipleship. That's what he tells them to do. So, we need to be around different generations, be around one another. Um, the older modeling, the younger mimicking. The older training, the younger learning. That's what we're talking about. Um, the final way I'm going to mention here is Galatians 6. You don't have to necessarily turn there, but I'm going to say biblical counseling is what I'm going to call this. This is discipling, but on a more focused level. That's what we're talking about here. That's all biblical counseling is. It's helping someone follow Jesus, but in a more personalized, you're entrapped in a particular sin or there's a particularly heavy form of suffering that are just, they're, they're kind of making it hard to see the path forward. And biblical counseling is a discipleship that says, let me help you follow Jesus out of that, or in the midst of that kind of all-encompassing situation you're in. That's what we're talking about. Galatians 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, spiritual there does not refer to superhuman Christians, like you are, you're the next level Christians, you're the elite forces, right, of, of Christians. It just means people who are mature and they're walking in the spirit. That's what he just got done talking about in Galatians 5. You're walking in the spirit and so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about restoring someone who's been ensnared in a particular form of sin or suffering. Now, for these last two that I just mentioned, uh, if you'd like more training in that, because pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, we're happy to help in training you for that. You say, I wanna do that, but I have no clue what that looks like. Um, there's a lot more that can be said about that. So whether it's, it's kind of more personalized, one-on-one general discipleship, or small group discipleship, or whether it is biblical counseling, we want to train you and equip you for that, especially older godly men and women in the congregation. So we encourage you to contact us about that. You can send an email to the office and we'll get back with you on that. So as we draw to a close, we see that we are all members of the body of Christ. We're part of the family of God. And so we have a role to play. And I think we are doing well in this. I'm not saying all this because I don't think this is happening. I'm saying we have a lot of room we can excel even more in. And I'm saying the cultural waves are pushing us away from this. I don't want us to just get pushed around. We want to know what we're supposed to do and why we're supposed to do it. And then how it can how we can go about doing it. So that's my goal. I hope this has helped you. I hope this has encouraged you in thinking about that. And so I would say, just just take this, take away from this. God, help me to help others follow you. Make that your prayer especially on Saturday night and Sunday morning. That way when you show up, you come ready to engage in that work. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word and we're thankful that you give us um, this design, this pattern, and that it glorifies you. We pray for your help to stay the course, to grow in these things, and that we would see the fruit that comes from this sort of ministry in the body. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.